We're going to continue walking through our series in some, a few parables. We took about eight parables, about two months and some parables, just to break up. We were studying Colossians for months, and so I wanted to be in some words of Christ. And so when we finish up today and then next week, we're going to be studying the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. So that's kind of the parable of heaven and hell, and can you communicate with people between heaven and hell. And so it's a it's an often misquoted passage of scripture. So we want to kind of go after it, what really Jesus is talking about. Um, and so eternity is kind of hanging in the balance in this parable. It's a parable. So people misread them because it's a parable and you start saying, well, that's mean, this is how it is. Well, that's not the case. So we'll wrap up with that. It's going to be a fun one, I hope, maybe. We'll see. And then we're going to be eight weeks in Deuteronomy. And the book of Deuteronomy is the second telling of the law. I want to spend some time in the Old Testament. Um, essentially, some background is that the people grumbled. They almost chose to go back to Egypt. And so then God says, guess what? You get to wander around in the desert for 40 years. And so we have Moses. Um, there's only three living people left that were in Egypt in the Exodus. The whole rest of the couple million people are new. They're young and they need to be retaught the law. All the grumbling people have died and they've gone on. And so here you have three remaining people, and one of them is Moses, and he's retelling the law over days. They're sitting on the banks of the Jordan, and he's retelling the law, why you're here. You're here for a purpose, why God saves you, why he's here, what you're born for. And then they go into the promised land. So um, that'll be, I think it'll be pretty, I think it'll be awesome. I'm excited. So that's where we're going. We're landing that way. But we have two more parables to go through, um, two more sections before we get there. And then in July during Sunday school, you know, we take Sunday school off during the summer. Um, but I wanted to do kind of a hot topics thing um, and during Sunday school in the month of July. So the Sundays in July, we'll do um, just some hot topics, like things going on in the culture. Because I, I purposely don't um, preach about current events a lot. Because I want us to be rooted in the scriptures. I want us to, whatever comes across, um, the Bible is what we're going to address. So we're going through the book of Colossians, talking about marriage. That's when we do a sermon on marriage. We don't just say, hey, let's do three things to draw a crowd and let's cause a stir. And I just don't, I don't believe in that. Um, I don't think that's right. But I also feel like as a pastor, we should address things that are going on in the culture around us. So we have a good biblical worldview to look at those through. So. Um, if you have something you'd like to discuss or something you think is a hot-button issue that we should discuss as a, as a church family, then email me or talk to me after church. And the month of July, I've got some ideas. The first one's going to be the inerrancy of Scripture. We're going to talk about the, the root of Scripture, why we can trust it and believe it. It's inerrant. It's perfect. It's awesome. And that's we're going to be the litmus test for everything that we go through. Because um, if you just come to me and say, I read this book once that said that the Bible says this then I'm just going to politely say, well, that's great. I'm sure it's a great book. What's the Bible say? Uh, I don't know. Well, then we got everything has to go through the lens of the scriptures or we're just making things up. It's just an opinion. Even if you have a, a debatable question, archaeologists this, did this, did, well, then come at it. We're in a college town. Come at it with the academic honesty to come after it. Don't just say that you read it on Facebook and so you can't believe it anymore. Um, you know that Facebook and Wikipedia are not good sources of information, especially about the Gospels, right? You guys know that? You okay with that? Okay, all right. So give me your suggestions and we'll run with it, okay? So let's pray and we'll jump into God's Word. Heavenly Father, thank you again for today. Um, thank you for um, getting us here, allowing us to be in your presence through worship. And as we transition into worship through your Word, I pray that you would open up our eyes and you open up our ears and you let us see. See that we're here for a purpose, that we all have um, a gift, a talent, a reason for being here. I mean, the overarching reason is to glorify your name and to enjoy you forever. But inside that, you cause us to burn with a passion. Help us to identify that and help us to walk in your will. We love you, Jesus. Amen. So today we're going to be in Luke chapter 14. Um, 25 to 35, and the, if you have a, a translation that has bold around it, this will, it'll say the cost of discipleship. But we have to give a little background before we get there so you understand what Jesus is doing and who he's speaking to. So if you, trans, if you turn back a couple pages in Luke to um, about chapter 12, you can see all these parables. You can see that he's talking about um, to his disciples. 
So he's talking to crowds in parables. He's talking to his disciples about being anxious. He's telling them, be ready. He's telling them, I didn't come to make your house all happy. And I didn't come to bring all this peaceful kumbaya singing around a campfire. We all just love each other. That he came to bring division over the gospel. And so we continue through. He talks about settling your, like, you need to forgive people. You need to take care of the charges against you. You need to be kind to people. Then he continues through chapter 13, and he, he heals people. Then he says, well, the door to get to me is a narrow door. Then he has, uh, heals a man on the Sabbath. And then he goes to the houses of the Pharisees, and he has a meal with them. And at the meal, he kind of he smacks them in the face and says, do you even really know who God is? And then we land where we're at today in 1425. And it says, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them. So there's a great crowd around him, but you have to understand this is a huge crowd of people from all different walks of life. As we've seen him, Jesus is speaking to a crowd. So he's preaching and his disciples are right here. And there's a crowd of, we could call them in today's modern church culture, nomenclature, we'd say things like seekers, people interested, people that maybe not are real comfortable in the synagogue, they're not comfortable with church, but when somebody's out and open and they hear him talking about this stuff, they're like, well, I, I, I think I want to hear some more about this. Who is this guy? Then you have the people all around that have seen him heal people. There's people in the crowd that have witnessed Jesus heal people. People's hands who are crippled with either arthritis or they've been just all drawn up. He heals a man on the Sabbath and his hand works perfectly. That there's been, they hear the stories of people being raised from the dead. They hear stories of people being blind. Now they can see. So in this crowd are going to be people that want to see the miracles. They may be sick themselves. They're coming around Jesus, looking for a touch from God, looking for healing to know that their suffering is, is meant for something. They're not just in pain to be in pain. Like why, why, why is this happening? Then you have the religious leaders, two kinds of religious leaders, ones that are hearing this man teach in a way they've never heard the scriptures open before. So they're, they're blown away. Never heard the Bible taught like that. Never heard the scriptures open like that. So they want to hear more from Jesus. Then you have the Pharisees, the religious leaders that don't like Jesus. And they're just waiting for him to say something that they can kill him for it. So Jesus has this huge crowd all around him. They're all over him. And then he says this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So he's just gotten done with all these people all around. He's healed people. He's taught the scriptures like they've never heard before. There's people that are waiting to see the Pharisees get made fun of again. Like, none of, nobody's like that, right? You don't like it when somebody's put in their place. Like, someone thinks they're all arrogant, and they, they know all the answers, and then someone comes along and puts them in their place. None of you seek joy in that, do you? I'm the only sick one. Okay, so there's all these people around that they want to, they're waiting for what's going to happen. It's like that little boy uh, on the tricycle in the movie Incredibles. You guys seen the movie? Where he's just, like, why, he's just waiting to see something amazing. That's this crowd. They're just waiting to see something amazing. And Jesus turns to them and says, if you want to follow me, then you have to be willing to give it all up. Now, the word hate, I mean, what I always teach, I teach our children and I teach others that the word hate has this connotation that says you wish it was dead. So you don't say that you hate people. You don't say that you hate this thing because in that you want them dead. And so I've told Eli since he was little in Savannah, and they, they'll, they'll hear, hey, I'll say, hey, do you really want them dead? Or I'll make fun of it and go, you said you hated whatever, this toy, or you hated this object. Can you really, do you want an object to be dead? It's not alive. That's really illogical and silly, isn't it? And so I try to, like, that's a strong word. You use the word hate? That's strong. Well, we hear this, like, so I'm supposed to hate my wife? What about every other piece of scripture that says I'm supposed to love my wife? What every other part of the Bible that says was to love my children, but every other part of the Bible that says I'm supposed to honor my mother, my father is Jesus really saying that he's unraveling all of God's word. Well, no, he's not. So we have to let the Bible interpret the Bible. So if Jesus throughout the gospels and the other writers throughout all of scripture 
say these things about mothers and fathers and husbands and wives and children, then what's Jesus saying? Well, in Middle Eastern context, this word, it's still, the, hate translates into Greek hate, but what it's going on is saying that you need to be willing to give it all up. You have to be, you have to, you're willing to push away all social custom. So yes, you're supposed to be a committed husband and a committed father and a committed son to your dad. But if there's a ministry that you're to be involved in, if God's calling you to go do this, then you're going to have to have a hard conversation with your wife, have to hard conversation with your kids. You're going to have to say, look, I feel God calling us to this. And it may take time. It may take time to soften your spouse and say, okay, I'm on board. Or you're crazy for a while. Then months later, okay, I'm ready. But you can't, you can't just say, well, I got a good job. I've got a good life going on right here. And so I'm just supposed to coast along in this pattern. When God comes and grabs you and says, I've got to work for you, you can't say, well, you know, I, I don't want to move away from my family. You're supposed to stay with your family forever. Well, I got this great job providing benefits for my family and God's saying go do this. I don't know. I don't know. I, don't, I think I'm, I'm going to pass on what God's calling me to do because it's not safe. He's saying don't just rest in social custom. Then he says this, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So you got to put these two together. He's saying you have to be willing to break all social custom. Then you have to be willing to bear the cross that Christ, that God's provided for you. You can't be his disciple unless you're willing to carry your cross. Now, again, the idea of carrying your cross, I think we use this a little too flippantly. I, th- I think we use it in two ways that's not really helpful. Um, I think sometimes we have a real burden, a struggle, an addiction, a habit, something that we're really trying to fight, or we have a sickness, like we're fighting through something. We'll say, well, that's my cross to bear. It's my cross to bear. It's this burden. It's my cross to bear. I have to bear that cross. Or we'll use it in a joking manner. So, and I know I'm the only twisted one in the room. So if I put on a suit, which most of you have not seen me in, it's usually around funerals or weddings. And so if Amber gives me a compliment, she sees me in a suit and I put on the tie, man, you look really nice. And then I'll say something like, you know, I make this suit look good. It's just the cross I have to bear. Right? Don't we? I mean, I'm, not, I'm the only one that jokes like that, right? We'll say things like that. Well, you know, I'm pretty amazing. That's my cross to bear. Well, I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. Because if, we, if you really think about this, the effort of the cross, Jesus, we know in Hebrews, went to the cross out of joy. We know that he went there for a reason. We know that he was born for a purpose, which was to show us the truth and to die on the cross for us. That he stepped out of heaven in the perfect relationship of the Trinity to take on flesh, to walk with us and go to the cross for our sins. We know that. So if he's saying your cross to bear, if you don't bear your own cross, does, what does that mean? Now usually what we'll say is things like, you might die, that's your cross to bear. Are you willing to take the punishment? Are you willing to take the, the sacrifice? Are you willing to take the... But he just got him talking about custom and calling and the cost of discipleship. So here it seems um, that he's talking about whatever God has birthed in you. The passion that he's put in you. The the burden of the cross, the gospel, the gospel message that's burning in your heart. You have to carry that. And you carry it with joy because he carried the cross out of joy. So what's it look like? Well, I think as we read, we'll look in a minute, the, the cost of discipleship. It's just really this drive towards an understanding that your whole life is to be served to the kingdom. So what cross do you bear in this regard? It's not just an illness or an affliction or a burden. It's, it can be a joy. Like when I think back, if I try to boil down my existence, like why am I a pastor? Why was I a teacher before becoming a pastor? What's my, what gets me up in the morning? What fills me with joy? What do I want to do the most? What do I want to spend most time doing? What do I, what I want to share with people? If I had a legacy to leave, what would I want it to be? And I think mine is as a quest for the truth. The truth of the scriptures. But that's been marked in my life since I was in fourth grade. It led me to a social science degree. Led me to teaching history. It was all about teaching truth. 
I cleaned out, we, we remodeled my office, and I cleaned out some books and took them home. And yesterday, um, I brought a pile of books down. On the top was this book that was very transformative in my life. It's called Lies, Teacher, or, yeah, Lies, Teach, Lies My Teacher Told Me by James Lowen. And it's this whole book about how the American history textbook industry didn't really teach truth. And so if you just have a history teacher that teaches the textbook, you're not getting the whole truth. So I was on track. History major, wanted to go to law school. Um, I was in this tension because my wife was paying all the bills. She was kind of my sugar mama. And I didn't feel that that was right. And so here I was looking at four more years of college. I was a junior in college. And I'm like, I just don't know. I just don't know if this is, I, I don't think I can do this. I mean, she was willing. It was fine. But I just, I didn't know. And then I read this book and I felt offended that I was not taught the truth in high school. Now, there's some things in the book, a little revisionist, get a little goofy, but the, heart, the core of it is, do you have a heart for the truth? Well, that translated to a social science degree and becoming a history teacher. Well, that continued on. I become a Christian at 17. Um, I help in the church. I saw this burning desire for the truth. And I started reading the Bible and listening to it being taught and understanding and studying. And I'm going, why aren't people told this stuff? Why aren't people going after the truth of the scriptures? One of the most important books you ever read, the important decision ever made in your life is to follow Christ. The most important things in your life surrounding the gospel and eternity hangs in the balance and we just kind of make it about seven ways to be happy. That's unacceptable. Like this is everything. And so I have a burning burden. I think the cross that I carry is a burden for the truth to be taught. Does it mean that I always know the truth? Of course not. But I'm going to work hard and work with you hard to go after what's real, what's true. Well, that's my burden. What burdens he put on you? Has he put the burden for kids on your heart? Well, then you can't help but help other people. You can't help but care for children. When you look at the news and there are kids that are suffering and starving and not being taken care of, you can't stand it. It kills you. You have a past with high school and teenage life and there's been... Um, broken marriage in your family. See, this passion for people and marriage to be strong and fulfilled. And it's this burning desire in your heart for people to be whole. You struggle with an addiction. You struggle with it. You found deliverance from it. And now you have this burning passion in your heart. The cross you're bearing is for all people who are struggling to be free of that burden. Now, I'm quite confident that every child of God has been given a burning passion. If you would just press into him and ask him to reveal it to you, he will reveal it. What is it? We can start, I don't want to name names, but we can start dividing up in this room people and the areas in this church you serve in, I would gather are probably part of the burning desire that's in your heart. Whether it's in children's ministry, youth ministry, music, worship, working around here at the church, you're good with your hands, you have a burning desire to serve, like all, it's, it's in you. So Jesus is saying, if you aren't willing to take the cross that he's put on you and follow him wherever he takes you, you can't be his disciple. You can't be his disciple. He's given two parables after this. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? Whenever he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So you get this idea that before you begin something, you should probably have it all laid out, have a plan. So this is, um, Bob Routson was here earlier and I was making a joke about, so let's say I want to build a house and I decided I need to build a foundation. So I just call the concrete people and say, well, just pour some concrete for me. Like, well, where are the forms and what's the plan and the design? I don't know, just pour a slab and we'll just make it up as we go. And I pour the slab and I got this giant, massive slab of concrete and then i realized i don't have enough money to put up any studs or put a roof on i got nothing i just i i spent my whole savings on this giant slab of concrete i had no plan no design no material i got nothing i'm just rolling with it because i want to build a house i know i'm supposed to build a house i want to build a house i have no plan now what we get out of this is this idea that if a builder is going to build something he has a plan he has an idea of what's going to happen to the end when we get this other parable about a king going to war, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him 
who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So this picture of a king just looking over the men, got 10,000, it's 20,000, the terrain, we have no place to trap them. There's, it really looks like you either decide this is going to be a good thing, we use a train to our favor, we've got resources, we've got better technology, we can, we can win, we can beat these guys. Or you look at all the facts and go, we're toast. Send an envoy for terms of peace because I'm not going to let 10,000 be slaughtered. So Jesus tells these two parables. They're confusing, aren't they? Like, what does that have to do? So are you telling me that I need to have a plan? I need to have everything planned out. I need to have everything. So I'm going to come to faith with a game plan. Well, here's my game plan. I'm going to come to church on Sunday. And then in three weeks, I'm going to check the place out. And then that's when Jesus will come and capture my heart. And he'll open me up. The Holy Spirit will open me to the truth. And the gospel will ring true. Three weeks, my deadline. Then in about two months, I'm going to learn all I know about the Bible. And then I'm going to be set up. And in nine months from now, I'll be planting a church in this city. I've got the game plan. It's all going to work. Perfect. Now, how many times in your life have you had a plan and God upset the whole plan? Am I the only one? Like, you, you have a plan. Like, I will never forget the moment at 22 years of age. I think 22, maybe 23, walking out of Lincoln High School with the keys to my classroom. Amber's with me. It's on like a Friday. Maybe it's a Thursday. I got hired a week into the school year because they didn't have a teacher. So I'm going in, checking out the room, figuring out what I'm going to do. Like, I had no clue. I hadn't taught before. It's a week into school year. I'm scrambling, trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And we, I walk out of the building. It's the school that Amber and I graduated from. And I remember getting into the car going, this is the next 30 years of my life. I was happy about it. I wasn't like, this is 30 years. Oh. I was very happy about that. I'm like, I, I've, because everything else in life had been kind of up in the air. Like, I don't know. I'm not sure where you at, God. I don't know. Like, this is it. 30 years. Well, clearly, I don't live in southern Indiana. I'm not teaching high school anymore. God has a way of changing plans. He has a way of changing your direction. He has a way of saying, you've got all these plans laid out. Are you willing to let them all go for me. So he says, take your cross, follow me. And it's like these two parables. These people are planning it all out. They're trying to weigh it. And Jesus is essentially saying that doesn't apply to me. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And that's the core of this parable. Are you willing to let everything go? Do you walk through all of life with an open hand? Like you have a closed hand around the truth of the gospel, who Jesus is, the cross, eternity secured because of his sacrifice for you and for me. But everything else in life is an open hand. Where are you going to go to school? I don't know. We got an open hand on that. I'd like to go to this school, but I, I, wherever God takes me, I'm going to go there. What kind of job are you going to have? Well, I got this degree, and it makes sense to use the degree in which I got a degree in for a job. So I'm going to hold an open hand, but how many of us have degrees and now we have jobs that don't use that degree? Just one or two of us? Or we say, you know, I, this is my hometown. I love it here. I love Laramie. I love this place. I love where I'm at. I love the, the, the community I have here. But I'm going to hold an open hand. Wherever God sends me, that's where I'm going to go. Now, this doesn't happen overnight. Like, the plan isn't, doesn't seem to happen where Christ captures your heart, you share that with your church family, you're a, say, you're a Christian, you're happy to call yourself that, you're kind of on fire, and then you say, okay, well, my plan is X, Y, Z. I know where God's going to be using me 20 years from now. I don't see that very often. Instead, I see steps of trust, steps of faith. Well, Lord, I don't know how to help with the youth group, but I'm, I'm going to volunteer for a while. I'll volunteer. Man, I don't, I don't know. I just feel this burning passion, this desire to, to do more. Like I'm getting really sick of my teaching job because I just want to tell them, tell them about the truth in the Bible. And so I'm going to leave that. Or, well, I, I don't want to leave my family. Like here's this whole network of people and here's our immediate family. They can help and raise this child, but, or raise our kids and be there. And my kids grew up next to my grand, their grandparents. And how great would that be? But then God says, but well, I want you to move. There's people here that I'll give you a family but you, you need, are you willing to live your whole life with an open hand to go wherever he calls you? That's the core of this. If you're not willing, that doesn't mean that you don't have plans before God. 
Like, I pray for my children every night. I pray for my kids to grow strong, to find good spouses, for God to raise up godly, a godly woman for Eli and a godly man for Savannah, and for them to be healthy and whole and to have, like, I have all these prayers and I have all these dreams, I have all these ideas for my kids, but maybe that's not for them. Eli asked me the other day, which is really funny, like out of nowhere, we're having lunch, we're sitting at the table, and I, we're talking about mission trips or going overseas or something. I don't know why, I don't even know what brought it up. And we're talking about it, and he says, Dad, yeah, when I get, when I get married, um, I think this is what's going to happen. I'm like, well, Eli, like I'm trying to, I don't want him to set up, I want him to understand, but I don't want him to be like, well, what if, what if God doesn't bless you with a wife? Like, what if you're called to singleness? And so I'm trying to explain to him the idea of being single and how you have less of a, a less of, a, I don't, exactly. I was, I was trying not to say burden because that's not a burden. But, so thank you for my thesaurus. You have less responsibility to a wife because the Bible's clear. You have a spouse, you have responsibility, responsibility to your children. So if you're single, you don't have those responsibilities. You're free to go and do, and you're free to live a different way. But if you have a family, you have responsibilities. And so I was trying to explain that to him, and he goes, yeah, because it's, it's pretty much illegal to be single, isn't it? <laughs> and I'm like, no, son, it's, it's not illegal to be single. And so I'm trying to explain to him like, how the gospel works and how the kingdom works. And I just try to preach to him, and I try to teach him, as a, I try to be a good dad to say, Eli, I have no idea what God has for you. I have no idea. I know that he saved you. I know that he wants you to serve him. But other than that, I have no clue. I have no idea. Are you willing to go wherever he calls you? And at eight years old, he's like, yeah. I'll go, whatever. I'll go wherever he says to go. And I want to keep reminding him of that as he gets older. But then, isn't it part of our whole culture where we want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. Isn't it? I mean, Hollywood has tapped into this infinitely. Like there was an HBO TV show a while back called Band of Brothers. Now, this TV show is about a group of airborne soldiers dropped behind enemy lines during World War II, correct? I only saw probably four or five episodes of it because I just... I'm, I was late to the party. I didn't go back and watch it. And what there's a consistent theme of brotherhood throughout the whole movie, isn't there? It's less about combat. It's less about the war. And it's more about this brotherhood. These men were willing to give up everything for their brothers. Now, how many of you have seen Saving Private Ryan? Same concept. It's about the storming of D-Day. It's about this man named, about Private Ryan. And so you watch the whole movie and there's all this carnage and it's, kind of crazy it's one of the first war movies that really showed in a graphic manner on a big screen i mean i remember when amber and i went and watched it we walked out like in silence like usually people are laughing and eating their last bit of popcorn and people were just horrified by it now we're so desensitized to it, it doesn't even impact us but like the core of it was there's something bigger going you're fighting for this this group of men like they're they're living and dying for each other and in the last uh year the movie Lone Survivor, same thing, right? Comes out where it's about these men who are willing to give it all for each other. They're willing to give up everything. Like they have wives, they have kids, they have responsibilities, but yet they feel this urgent sense of duty to country, but more than just duty to country, it's duty to the brothers sitting next to them. Right? So it's a sense of, are you willing to renounce it all, to give it all up? It's not just men. Hollywood capitalized this in the Pearl Harbor movie. Where you had, there's pictures of the nurses in the movie running to the fight. In harm's way. I mean, isn't that who we call heroes? Firemen, policemen, teachers in school shootings, young men in Washington State who stops an attacker. Like, isn't that what we call a hero? Someone that's willing to step in to the middle of the mix and say, I'm going to stand up to this. I'm going to run to the fight right? Willing to give up everything. Even teachers. This is an oldie, but a goodie. Remember Dangerous Minds when Coolio was hip? You guys remember that at all? Like the, the song? Okay, I'm dating myself. Even teachers, 
inner city teachers fighting for the hearts and minds of kids. I mean, how many movies, if you really think about it, besides romantic comedies, how many movies have this theme? Someone willing, even the comic, every comic book movie that's out there is about a man or a woman faced with insurmountable odds. Something happens to them. They feel a conviction. And they're going to use the gift that's been given to them to help other people, right? That's Batman, Avengers, spite all of them. It's all of them, right? But it's also for things much bigger. This is Nate Saint. Um, the movie End of the Spear, you can read the book too. It's about a young man who was a pilot, a missionary, and he was flying supplies and Bibles into Uganda, or, I'm sorry, into Ecuador. He's flying into Ecuador and he is killed by one of the tribesmen. Kills him with a spear. And it tells the story of how he and his wife had this conviction that they were going to go. They were going to serve an, a group of people that weren't exposed to the gospel, help them get a translation of the Bible in their own native language, and he's killed. Years later, the wife and his, one of his sons goes back to the village, and the man who killed Nate Saint comes to the wife and asks for forgiveness. Because of Mr. Saint's life and how he died, he had an overwhelming conviction of the Holy Spirit and was saved after the fact, after he committed murder. And he begs for forgiveness and mercy from his wife. And she forgives him. And they still fly into this village and they help these people. And the son has now created a flying car for mission work. Now, it's not a legit, like, cool Jetsons flying car. It's like a long dune buggy, a two-seater dune buggy that has a big fan on the back. And you stop it, it'll go 60 miles an hour, can bust through all the trails. And it has a giant parasail parachute you put over the top. And you can fly into remote villages to send supplies and the gospel and take Bibles and medicine and whatever's needed in these areas. So even the tragedy of a, of a father being killed on the mission field does not sway the faith of this family. Bless you. How about Katie? Katie Davis. Have you read the book Kisses from Katie? I haven't read it either. I've just heard her preach or her speak a couple times at a couple churches. Um, this young woman at the age of 18, um, from Tennessee, leaves, and she goes to Uganda. And she um, goes on a short-term mission trip. And her heart is broken for these young girls that are just on the streets. The parents have died from AIDS. There's no one to care for them. There's no one around. And she doesn't know what to do. So she comes back from her short-term mission trip, talks to her parents, and says, I'm going to go over and teach. I'm going to go spend it. I'm going to take a year off, like this is high school. She says, I'm going to take a year off from college and I'm going to go teach in Uganda. She goes over to teach. She ends up adopting four girls. She puts roots in the community. She now lives in Uganda. She believes that it's even more effective for Americans to go into the hard places and adopt children in their native culture instead of taking them from their native culture to here. That's her belief. I think it's both. It's, it's not either and, it's Either or, it's both and. So as we adopt kids from poverty into the United States, then we can also have a calling for some of us to leave and go to third world places to raise kids in their native culture. She now has 13 children. She has 13 girls. Um, She saw a continued burden for the people in the area, and she now feeds two meals a day, five days a week, to 1,200 kids in this village she lives in in Uganda. She also has a ministry, and I always get it wrong. It looks like amazing. It's like... Amazama, but it means truth in native Ugandan language. And so they make necklaces and they sell them and you can support women who have jobs, who can provide for themselves. And so this is an 18 year old girl. I think she's 25 now. An 18 year old girl goes to her parents and says, I'm going to go to Uganda. And then she calls them or I think she sent an email, emailed them while she was there saying, I'm not leaving. What would you do? Would you say, Praise God for my daughter and her faithfulness to Christ and her commitment to the kingdom. Or would you say, get your rear end back to the States now. You've got to go to college. What would you do? Well, I pray I'd let my kids go. I'm not there yet. They're eight and six, so I don't know. But I pray I would. How about this? A letter um, written in the early 1800s by um, a young man named Judson. He's writing for the hand in marriage 
of a young woman that has captured him and has a passion for the gospel and wants to share the gospel to the most unreached people. So he writes to Mr. Hasseltine asking for his daughter. So here's the letter a young man's writing to a dad saying, can I take your daughter? It's hand in marriage and we're going to go overseas. Now remember, this is the early 1800s. They're going to go to Burma, which would be modern day Myanmar, correct? I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjugation to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, or perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this? For the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? So if a young man comes to me and says, Can I marry Savannah? and take her to a third world country where she may die, you're never going to see her again. Number one, he's going to say this in person. He won't write a letter. In my house, you're going to talk to me before you want to have a conversation with my daughter. So not going to be letters or honks at the street in your car. You're going to come to the door like a gentleman or my daughter's staying in the house. And so you have, like, he's, so he's, I, I can just picture a young man, maybe a young man in this church, grows up in this church with her, She's enamored with him. He's enamored with her. He comes to me and sits me down and says, Mike, because hopefully by then we know each other enough, he can call me Mike. I want to marry Savannah. And I want your blessing. And we're going to leave. And we're going to be Bible translators with Wycliffe Bible translators. And we're pledging the next 30 years of our lives to this tribe in Southeast Asia. And our goal of our life is when we die, they'll have a copy of God's word in their own language. You might never see her again. We might get there and she might be killed within a month. We might be gone. Will you bless this marriage? Right now? I don't know. I can tell you and just lie to you and say, yeah, I'd be fine with that because that's what you're supposed to do. But I pray to God that I'd be willing to let her go. What if she came to me and said, Daddy, me and my fiance." We're going to get married, and then we're going to go to Iraq. We think that even though Christians are being killed and ran out, that's where we're going to go. Now, my heart says, you're crazy. Why would you go to that place? That place is, they're in the middle of war and strife right now. But if God has put on her heart to go to the hard place, how am I going to stop her? No, dear, I've taught you about the Bible for 18 years of your life and the importance of being a disciple and the cost of discipleship. But just this one time, let's ignore the scriptures and just listen to me. Do you honestly think I could say that to her? Of course not. Now, what will probably happen is I'll say, well, I'm coming with you and I'm going to bring my best Wyoming hunting rifle and, you know, I'll be your protector. But probably not. So I'm just, I want to keep, I want you to see to the forefront of your mind that the cost of discipleship is everything, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Now, here's where this takes a turn. So it seems like Jesus has turned to the crowd and he said to the crowd, you guys are around here because you want to hear me smack the Pharisees. You want to see some miracles. You like the free food I have when I take two loaves and some fishes and turn into more. You like these meals I provide, but you need to be ready. Like, are you really ready to, for your whole life to be about the gospel? Are you really ready for this? Have you counted the cost? Have you sized it all up? Is this really what you want? And then he drops this at the end. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So he's done, it seems like he's speaking options in the previous pieces of scripture. And then he turns around and says, you have no options. You're either for me or you're worthless. You're either working for the kingdom 
or you're not even worth keeping the stink off of manure. Because that's what he's talking about in salt. If you add the right mixture of salt, the right mixture of nutrients, it can be good for a field. It can be good for crops. You put too much salt, too strong a salt, you'll kill the soil. Nothing will grow there. It'll be destroyed. But also salt during this day was used to, as you had giant piles of manure around it, it used to be spread in the field. They would put it over the top of the manure to keep the smell out. So Jesus is saying, if you're a Christian, you're my disciple, if you've lost your salt, if you're not good enough for the field and you're not good enough to keep the stink down, you're worthless. You're worthless to me. So how can you put this on a scale and say, we just said have options. I weigh the cost. It's my decision. And then he says, guess what? If you don't make the right decision, you're worthless. So he's not speaking options in these two little parables. What he's saying is your life is to be served for the kingdom. Your whole life is for the kingdom. Everything is about Jesus. It's not about you. And I know this is so hard in our American culture. If you go to other countries, you speak to pastors from overseas or missionaries from overseas. When you talk about being sold out, Jesus is everything. He demands everything. They'll look at you and go, yeah, we read the Bible and he says it's everything. So we're just going to give him everything. Right? And here we start saying, well, you know, in the proper context, he said my whole life, but I don't think he really meant my whole life. I think what he meant was Sunday mornings for an hour and a half, depending on how long Mike preaches. That's what he really meant. You're not going to get stuck on an island by yourself, having no knowledge of the scriptures and read this book and come away from it saying that obedience is an option. So I look at this much like we talk about baptism around here. Baptism does not save you. There's nothing spiritual or magical in the waters of baptism. Your heart is captured and you're saved before you ever go into the baptistry. You don't need to be baptized to be saved, to be secure in heaven for eternity. However, Jesus commanded us to follow in the waters of baptism, so it's not an option. Do you get that? It's not a requirement, but it's not an option. Do you understand? So, Your discipleship, your following of Jesus, he lays it all out. The calling is individual. Your relationship is very individual. It's for you to figure out, but it's not an option. So in this room, he's called all of us in different ways. I really feel in my bones he's called me to teach and to preach the word. But for some of you, you'd be terrified to get up on a stage in front of people and open up the Bible. What's well, not what he's called you to do. I'm not very good with little kids. I love little kids. I'm great at playing with little kids. But I don't know that I'm really good at, at teaching them in children's ministry. Because what turns into is they throw stuff at me and I throw stuff back. And we have a good time and they like me. But to sit down and now I can do it with my children, my own kids. But I don't know. I, I don't think that's not my call. I'm not called to be a children's pastor. Some of you are called, you have great skill with your hands. You can work like crazy. You can help people around in physical ways. You know how to build things. You can help around around the church. You can do, that's your calling. Some of you can't do anything like that. Like if I handed you a set of tools, you would go, I, what is that? I see those in Walmart when I walk by, but I don't know how to use any of those. But God's gifted you, a, a, he's given you a gift of systems and processes, and he's given you a financial understanding. And for some reason, you understand markets. You know how to run a business. You know how to do things financially, and just money rolls into your bank account. If that's you, we can talk later. But, like, (laughs) money rolls into your account, right? And if you just make it about you, build bigger houses, have more, then he's given you a gift, An ability to say, you know, I don't feel called to go on the mission field. I don't feel called to go overseas. That terrifies me. I don't think I'm gifted in that. I don't think I'm gifted in those areas. But you know what I am gifted at? I'm gifted at making money. So you three people that are really good at sharing the gospel, you're fearless. I will fund your way to go. And we'll all get the glory for what happens. God gets all the glory. But we'll share in the glory of God for what just happened. Correct? So it takes all of us. Well, what's he put in your heart? 
It's not an option. So you saw it because I did it wrong. But So following Christ isn't a part-time job. It's not a part-time gig. This isn't something you just kind of take your hat off. Well, it's church day. So I'm supposed to put on, I'm supposed to tuck my shirt in. Because that's what you do at church. Tuck your shirt in. I tuck my shirt in. I came to church. And I'm here. Well, now I'm going to leave. I'm going to hang my church clothes up. And now I'm going to put on my, you know, grungy jeans. And I'm going to go work on the car in the garage. And so I only put on my church clothes an hour and a half a day, hour and a half a week. And that's when I'm going to follow Christ. And I'm going to sing, have a great time, fellowship, enjoy people, meet people. But then when I leave this place, I'm just going to leave Jesus in the building. I'm leaving the building, but Jesus is staying in the building. Right? We live compartmental lives. That's not what he's saying. He's telling us this isn't a part-time job. Everyone is all in because of what he's done for us. And when you understand that, there's this great book by Louis Giglio. It's called, I am not, but I know I am. I know the I am. I'm not that special. I'm not worthy of glory, but I know the one who is. And he's my friend. And that makes me filled with joy and makes me whole. It's a terrific book. And the whole concept is, if you could just understand this, if you'd really understand that it's all about Jesus, it makes life a lot simpler and it makes you a lot more free. Like we should really stop living like it's high school. I mean, high school's over. It's a big four years of life in the, in the life of a student, but all of us that have been through it, we realize it was four years and it's not really like there comes a time when you shouldn't wear your high school letter jacket every day, Right? You could break, you could dust it off for reunions if you want, but you shouldn't be, you know, in your 50s going, remember that football game? I made that one good play. You, need, you, you should have grown past that. But there's also how we should grow past the cliques of high school, the idea of trying to fit in. So here I am, God's given me this gift of teaching. He's given me a gift of teaching. For some reason, I can make sense of some stuff and I can try to share it with people. So am I going to tell people that I'm going to use that for the kingdom? No, I think I'm going to be a teacher. But inside, I know that I want to go to seminary and I want to go do these things and I want to go be this and I want to do these things. Well, so I taught at high school. And for three, four, five years, I refused to tell any of my students that I was teaching at the church. Why? Well, I felt like I was a high school kid wanting to not... They let my worlds collide. God gives you a gift for engineering. You're a major at the university for engineering. And he's put in your heart a passion for engineering to go and to help a country fix their water system, fix their civil engineering, fix their bridges, fix all their stuff. And you're asked by one of your professors, what are your hopes and dreams? Uh, To get a job, make a lot of money. Great. But inside, inside you want to go help people. So why don't you share that? Why don't you share what he's put the burning desire in your heart for? Because you're afraid to share that God's put a passion in your heart to help some people? I'm going to be a nurse. I'm going to go to nursing school. I want to help people. And I think I'm going to do some short-term mission trips. I think it's a perfect thing for me. Because I can go spend a week in South America or Southeast Asia. And I can go serve down there. So I'm becoming a nurse because I can provide for my family. But the real end result is I'm going to impact the kingdom through helping others. Why don't you share that when your professor asks? Where are you looking for jobs at? Uh, mercy ships. Mercy ship? Why are you going to do that? That's dangerous. Why would you go on a mercy ship? Because that's the cross I'm supposed to bear. That's my burden, to help others. To help other people. So the parable wraps up with this concept, this idea that your whole life is Jesus's. You're bought with a price. You're his. What are you going to do with it? Now, I know what happens in our American mindset is I'm in charge of my own destiny. I'm the captain of my own ship. I make my own decisions. I've earned these things. And in reality, they've all been gifts given to you by him. So what better way to show your appreciation, your affection, your love than to use what he's given you for the kingdom? So I know in this room, there's people burning with passions to do things to serve in certain ways, to help groups of people. You need to share those with us, with your family. And then we can get together. We can focus them, take them to the elders, to the pastors. We can say, this is where we see it going. Here's the common bond. And I promise we'll be blown away by what God's doing in our midst. 
Following Jesus is your whole life. And it's a life that's filled with amazing joys. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time uh, in your word where we can see that you put these great passions in our hearts. And I pray that we would see them as opportunities for the kingdom. That you don't just give us an aptitude or a knowledge or a degree just to be used for ourselves. That if we let that be terminated on us and on income and comfort, then we've really missed the blessing that you've given us. I pray that we would see everyone around us as people desperately in need of the truth of who you are, Jesus. If it's an employee, we're the boss, then we would see our employees as image bearers of God who desperately need Jesus. If we're in education, then we would see our students as children, young adults, adults as people who desperately need the truth of the gospel. If we have customers, then we wouldn't just see our customers as ways for us to make a living or ways for us to make a profit. That we would see our customers as people that not only need our services or our goods, but they need you, Jesus. And help us to find ways to make all of that happen. Help us to see the open doors. Like we heard of the story this morning um, from our sister in Christ who was just in a grocery store. And she saw someone that seemed down and they got in this conversation about loss and grace and mercy. Help us to open our eyes to all of those opportunities. That we wouldn't just walk around as part-time followers of you, Jesus. That we would let our lives in total shine the goodness of your sacrifice on the cross. But we need your help. If we don't tap into the power source of the Holy Spirit, Lord, then left to our own means, we'll put blinders on and just go about life. Help us, Lord. Help us to see. Shake us up. Help us to see clearly where you want us to serve. And then give us the joy of sharing all those stories with each other so we'd be built up as a family and we'd be caught up in the joy of spreading your name. We love you, Jesus. Amen.